we've created the life that we wanted and only just waking up to the fact that the life we wanted isn't actually very good for us at all. You know, we've like broken into the Swedish shop and we're all fucking dying. Everybody listen to me, the average person listening to me right now, you should be able to live to age 92 or 93. And we don't have that assumption for our economy. We just say, is it bigger than last year? Grand. Okay, that's good then. You know, the fact that with the fact that cancer rates are rising and anxiety is rising and uh, people are less and less able to walk home on their own after dark and there's more, you know, all, all the things that we don't want to happen in society, we don't measure, we don't factor those in. Monoculture is rejecting and destroying the fundamental principle of life that is diversity. Every single thing that lives is diverse, is unique. Every child, every earthworm, every leaf is being destroyed by this economy. It's deadly. It's anti-life. Hello and welcome to the Happy Pair Podcast. I'm Dave and there is no Steve here today. Uh, Steve's away in Poland. He's at a wedding. So I'm going to do this by myself. I'm a little nervous. Uh, I haven't done this before. So bear with me. I hope you enjoy it. Uh, but it is going to be worth it. This is going to be class. It really is. This is a, a life-changing topic and something that's been so core to our happiness and well-being. And I say our, I'm talking about Stephen and myself. We're identical twins. So I tend to speak more in the plural rather than the singular. Um, so yeah, like community, happiness, community and social connections has been at the core of everything we've done for the last 15 to 20 years, really. It's been 18 years since we started the Happy Pair Adventure and that is a business, really. And I guess community's always been at the core of it because we realized that without a community, it, it takes a community to support a business and it has to be relevant to the local community to exist. So we kind of realized very early on that the importance of cultivating community for our own well-being, for our business well-being, for every aspect of it. And I guess it's gone on to now where our lives are extraordinarily wealthy in terms of people and connection and communities. Unfortunately, uh, we live in the same town that we grew up in. Which is, you know, it has its pros and its cons. Lots of people would go, that's like, that's awful. How the heck can you do that? Like, it must be stifling and ever known your name and your own business. But it, for us, it's, it's absolutely wonderful because we have so many roots. There's so many social, deep social roots, which we have here. And from swimming in the sea, over the last seven years, we started swimming in the sea. Uh, we swim in the sea every morning. And there's been an incredible group of people who we swim with that have become really wonderful friends that enrich our lives massively and there's so much kind of social things which we do with them from workouts and parties and doing stuff helping on the farm and dance nights and you know this morning only this morning it was Cunnell's birthday and at 6am there was probably 40 of us down there singing songs and uh, there was a picnic and there was cake and there was tea and anyway I'm, I don't want to keep this too long but community we have found to be at the core of happiness because the more resilient we are um, like as individuals we can only go so far but as a collective we can go so much more and particularly you know modern society has this where there's you know we're, we're so dependent on one another and the more that we can get support from those around us the more likely we are to feel good and feel a sense of belonging because belonging is so core to the human experience and even when you looked back in 1990 there was a, a sociologist famous sociologist who did a survey and he found that uh, the average person this was in the 70s the average person had f three to four people to call on at a time of crisis so you know you've got some issue you've got to run to the hospital and you want someone to mind your kids you can call at least three people 
Whereas they did this experiment back in the early 2000s and they found that the average person had zero people to call on. So readiness really over the last kind of number of decades, we've become wealthier than we've ever had, certainly in the first world and the developed world. We've become more connected digitally than we've ever been before, yet at the expense of our own social connections and our own sense of, you know, social um, adhesion and integration, really. So we really wanted to explore this more because we, in our own research, we realized that community was the core of so much. But what we got from doing these, these episodes was so much more. Like it really, really was. We realized that there was there's so much more to this broad topic of community and social integration and social adhesion. There really, really is. In this episode, we've taken excerpts from a select few, including explorers who've immersed themselves in indigenous tribes, searched far and wide for the longest living and healthiest people, Mother Earth herself, who will impart her wisdom, and finally a trailblazer who has taken action and created his own localized community. So to kick it off, we have the wonderful Dan Butner, someone who's inspired us for many, many years. He's an explorer, National Geographic fellow, award-winning journalist and producer and a New York Times best-selling author. He discovered the five places in the world dubbed the Blue Zones, which you've heard us talk about many times, where people live the longest, healthiest lives. These are areas that have achieved the outcomes that we want. So they live a long time and they avoid the diseases that are crushing our economies and causing so much pain and suffering. Heart disease, cancer, diabetes, dementia several types of avoidable cancers. So these people aren't getting these diseases. So then we set about a different sort of branch of science to find out how, what these people are doing or what are the, what are the behaviors, the population-wide behaviors that correlate with these long-lived populations. And remarkably, no matter where we go, we see essentially the same behaviors and environmental characteristics in place. It's just shocking how you could be on one Okinawa on one side of the world and Costa Rica on the other side of the world, and the the, the same puzzle pieces are in place. So, and um, the big insight is that um, that uh, people in blue zones don't try to change their behavior; uh, they change they they live in an environment where the healthy choice is the easy choice. And the value proposition for everybody listening. Um, is about 10 extra years. So to kind of lead on from where Dan finished off, really, and he's been someone who really has done groundbreaking work and someone we quote so often, he breaks down the nine basic principles for these people, why they have such long, healthy, happy lives. And obviously, one is move naturally. You know, so movement is at the core of what they do. They don't have dishwashers. They don't have cars. They grow a lot of vegetables. This is the people in the blue zones. So they're forced to move naturally throughout the day. He kind of says himself that every 20 minutes, their environment forces them to move. They're not in gyms. They don't do triathlons. They don't, you know, have abs or big biceps or whatnot, but they move consistently throughout the day. And this is so important for every aspect of our health and well-being and our mental health. Number two, purpose. Purpose purpose is super, super important. Um, They tend to have a purpose beyond themselves, which is serving their own community. Um, Three, they're very good at downshifting, able to reduce stress. You know, because they surround themselves with many other people and they have such rich communities, you know, there is evening activities. There's meals, there's social interactions. There's, they're forced to be immersed. They find it easy to downshift and baked into their very lives is, it's just, it's part of what they do. Their environment cultivates them to be able to shift gears and downshift. 
Uh, four is they've got an 80% rule, and that's in terms of food, that don't eat until you're completely stuffed. Basic one, we've all heard this one. They have a plant slant in terms of their food, so they're not vegetarian or vegan, but 95% plus of what they eat is whole plant foods, except for in the Seventh-day Adventists, where they are 100% plant-based. They actually have wine at five, which... Um, and really it's not they don't drink a bottle of wine they typically have a glass of wine in a social interaction around 5 5 p.m. in the day so it really they found that it was it was the social interaction as much as the wine itself so it's not saying that you need to drink wine because um, I haven't drank in pretty much 20 years um, so this isn't going to make me drink but uh, it's more that, that, that they're making time to kind of to connect together and to celebrate together, really. And I guess the wine is a great tool to help them to relax and kind of enrich their conversations. So this might be coffee or tea or or something else as well. They tend to have a great belonging and a faith. So faith obviously doesn't have to be religious. It doesn't have to be specific to one religion or whatnot, but they have a faith in something much bigger than themselves and tend to really, it, it cultivates the reverence in life and the kind of depth and the spirituality to life that there's more than simply the bones with which we have and there is a greater kind of entity which they um, have great reverence for. Um, they put loved ones first, pretty basic and simple and most people um, tend to be like this. And then the last one is they have the right tribe. So right tribe is super important, obviously, and they really focus on on surrounding themselves with people that enrich their lives. And that goes with everyone, every single one of us. You know, when I think they say we all become the, the, the product of the five people we spend most time with. And there really is great truth in that because, you know, each people we spend around us influence our own behaviors and our own habits and you know the network piece of research which validated it that that was a really interesting piece of research and this was in terms of weight it said that you've an obese friend you're going to be something like 47 percent likely to become obese yourself if you've got a a friend of a friend who's obese you're going to be something like 22 percent likely to become obese and if you've got a friend of a friend's friend so third degree relationship you're gonna be something like 11 percent likely to be obese and it was only when it was a fifth generation friend that there was no correlation or no kind of linkage there so we all really do influence one another in more than we can think so it's making sure that you surround yourself obviously I'm not saying you need to get new friends but I'm saying you know be open to find friends that really cultivate and enhance the the values which you want to live by research that shows that lonely people people who don't have at least two or three friends they can count on on a bad day their their life expectancy is as much as eight years lower than people are connected so what does this all mean what's the prescriptive here the prescriptive is to build a social circle around yourself very carefully because we know that health behaviors are measurably contagious if your three best friends are obese and unhealthy there's a 150 percent chance that you'll be overweight yourself alcoholism um, drug use happiness even loneliness is contagious so you want to make sure to build this moai your own moai your own circle of people you're spending face-to-face time with of uh, people whose idea of recreation is playing tennis or walking or gardening Uh, people who you can count on on a bad day Uh, like we you know Bad stuff happens to everybody and, you know, people lose their spouse and a parent dies and a child gets sick and you lose your job. And we all have plenty of friends who are our are, are best friends on it. You know, if we have extra money and you're buying them a pint and uh, you're happy, but you know, when, when the life hits the skids, are they still around? So making sure you have friends that will support you when, you know, you can call up and cry or you can call up and, 
complain and, and they'll actually care. And then finally, I think it's really important to have uh, at least one, if not a few vegans or vegetarians in your immediate social network, which is by the way, way better than getting on some diet. If you look at the recidivism uh, curves of, of diets, they work for about seven months for 90% of people and they fail for almost everybody within two years. But if you make friends with the happy pair, every time <laughs> they come over to your house, they're going to make sure you're cooking for some plant-based food for them. When you go over to their house, they're going to cook some delicious stuff from one of their happy pair cookbooks. You're going to be introduced to this healthy food. It's not ramrodded down your throat or you don't have to do it out of guilt or I'm going to save the environment. You're going to do it because it tastes good. And whenever, whenever you go out to eat with the happy pair, you can bet it's going to be at a restaurant that's going to have some delicious plant-based food. You don't have to think about it. Dan's extensive research on environmental contributors for health and happiness goes deep. It really, really does. In our course, when helping people to change their diet, we always say to empty your cupboards and make sure the healthy choice is the easy and only available choice. In the same way, Dan describes this on a very large global scale. Somewhat disruptively, I say that if you're overweight in America and probably Ireland, um, it's probably not your fault. And I cite for for uh, support of that that statement that if you go back to the 1980s in this country, you had about a third as many people who were obese and about a seventh of as many people were suffering from type 2 diabetes. Now, you start asking yourself, so back in the 80s, did they have better diets? No. Uh, better exercise programs? No. Better supplements? No. Were people better people with greater discipline back then? No. What's changed? Well, what's changed is there's about 20 times more fast food restaurants than there were in the 1980s. Uh, there are about, um, we drive about 60% more miles. So we've spent 60% more time in our automobiles instead of on our feet. Um, a full 48% of all retail outlets in America. And I'm not just talking about convenience stores. I'm talking about places, pharmacies, and uh, I guess you call them chemists, and, and places that you would uh, get your tires changed. All have junk food. So we're genetically hardwired to crave fat and sugar and salt and take rest whenever we can. And that's okay when you live in an environment of hardship and scarcity like we have for 99% of human existence. But now you throw that same genetic makeup into this cesspool of burgers and fries and sodas and pizzas and packaged snacks and sweets. And your genetics are gonna win out all day long. You know, I like to think I'm a disciplined person. I'm sure you guys are disciplined too, but at a certain point for the vast majority of people, the genes are gonna win out over discipline and we're gonna grab that candy bar or be so hungry, we're gonna eat that burger. And the secret is not expecting, you know, like in my country, 330 million Americans to find, somehow find the discipline and focus of mind to do the right thing for you know, the next 50 years, uh, that the easier solution is set people up for success and shape their homes and their social networks. And you know, my business is shaping people, the cities that we live in. So the healthier choice is not only the easier choice, but it's the unavoidable choice. 
And that's what we see in blue zones in Sardinia and Okinawa and so forth. And that's going to be the key to reshaping our communities so that uh, people are eating healthier, moving more, living their purpose and socializing the right way. So the wonderful Dan Butner has made a career out of his findings by being invited by government bodies to reassess community areas to try and make them healthier. However, talking to Alina Norberg-Hodge, who we described as Mother Earth herself, like she really is, she's amazing. She really is so inspiring. There's so much more work to be done and the issue of health, environment and communities, according to her, is a far greater one. She's a pioneer. I don't know if you know about her, but she's a, a pioneer of the new economy movement and recipient to the Alternative Nobel Prize, the Arthur Morgan Award, and the Go Goai Peace Prize for contributing to the re- revitalization of cultural and biological diversity and the strengthening of local communities and economies worldwide. Pretty amazing, eh? She's also the author of the inspiring classic Ancient Futures and Local is Our Future and producer of the award-winning documentary, The Economics of Happiness. She's an amazing woman. She genuinely is, and she's all about local. That's her, that was the underlying message which I got from it. So our conversation with her was fascinating. She's now in her 70s, and she's been witness to so much change in the world. Unlike Dan, who focuses on human health and happiness, Helena goes that step further, using the Tibetan community Ladakh as an example. This community has been locked off from the world, and she, as a tourist, was one of the first to enter a community where she first-hand witnessed the destruction globalization can have on a community. One story she told us, which was fascinating, it was about a, a boy in Ladakh who she encountered when she first arrived. She asked him if he could show her where the poorest house is. He responded unsure and said there was no whore, poor houses. Eight years later, oh, that was poor houses, not whorehouses, in case you're wondering. Eight years later, after the world of globalization had been introduced to Ladakh, when she returned, she met the same boy again, who now a man and asked the same question, which he responded, we are all poor. I find your story of Ladakh phenomenal. I'm just wondering, could you talk briefly about that? Because I thought that really metaphor, it was a wonderful metaphor for what's happening. And I know wonderful probably isn't the best word, given that there's been such a shift. But I wonder if you could talk about that. Everything that I'm about, you know, came from Ladakh in a way, uh, because I ended up in this part of Tibet that belonged politically to India, that is high up on the Tibetan plateau, and the Dalai Lama was the spiritual head. And in this part of Tibet, people had been sealed off from the modern world. No one had been allowed to go there because this part of Tibet belonged to India, and they had all the borders were disputed with China and with Pakistan. And so they were very worried about spying and cross-border stuff, and they wouldn't allow people to go there. And then when they threw it open to tourism in 1975, I came out as one of the first outsiders, and I was coming with a film team. I was a linguist. I was only going to be there for six weeks. But I met the most radiantly happy and the healthiest people I had ever met. And I, well, I fell in love with the people and I went through the whole region. It's quite a big region, about the size of Austria, with about 100 villages spread in this beautiful, beautiful Tibetan landscape. And I was going collecting folk stories as part of my research. And everywhere I went, people just told me they, they, well, there was no unemployment, there was no poverty, no one had known hunger. 
I can't testify to what it might have been like a hundred years earlier, except I can tell you that there were missionaries who had come up a hundred years earlier, two hundred years earlier, and they had come out, you know, really certain that they had to improve the Ladakhi worldview. And all of them that I've come across testify to what I say, which is they had never met people who were happier, who were more honest, such a high status of women. So they were glowing in their praise of the people. They were still trying to convert them, but they didn't succeed very much. So by the time I came in the modern era, there were a few families who had become, uh, who were orphans, who had become Christian. And so there were a few Christian families. But the majority in the region where I worked were Buddhists, but there were also Muslims who had lived there for 500 years. And they had coexisted peacefully for 500 years. But I then became witness to what the modern economy does to people. And it really does what the global economy has always done, which is to conquer and invade local economies. So really, the economic system, you know, what's called the capitalist system, but I think I'm coming at it from a broader perspective than most of the critique of capitalism. And so what that economic system has done is to essentially force people away from the land, which happened through enclosures in Europe, and it happened through slavery, through forced slavery and genocide in the early stages of this economy. And once you had set up this system where you had slavery and enclosures, you had this perfect power for global traders. And I saw that in the modern era, this is the problem, is that this continued support for and handing over power to global traders is our biggest problem. Um, I saw this destruction of the local economy. I saw food coming in, you know, like things like butter, which was a very prized and important product in Tibet. Suddenly there's butter coming in that's been transported for weeks and it sells for half the price of local butter. So this opened my eyes to what I'm talking about, the need to strengthen local economies and with that local community and massively reducing pollution of all kinds. So Elena herself goes into much further detail and examples of where the import and export industry has got so far out of hand. The US, for example, in 2020 imported 3.34 billion and exported 2.96 billion pounds of beef. Why can't they just eat the meat that's there and only import what's needed? This kind of behavior of exporting and importing butter, flour, meat, fish, veg, etc. is happening all over the world and is adding massively to our climate crisis. Madness. And the worst of all is that here we have all these climate activists who don't even know about this. They don't realize that one of the easiest, most systemic way of reducing climate emissions would be to focus on food. What happens when you shorten the distance, when you start setting up a local farmer's market, when you set up a producer-consumer co-op and start getting the collaboration, the shorter distances mean that the market wants diversity. So you actually have a market pressure. We can still use money. We can still even have some interest. We can have some people working harder, you know, earning more money. But the whole 
question is keeping business at a scale where people can see what's going on and there's some knowledge, some chain of human connection so we're not being dominated by large institutions that confuse and end up essentially essentially preventing us from seeing what's actually going on. How did all this happen? According to the wonderful Lena, she says it all came about with the internet. The main reason we're in such a mess today is that the internet and the globalizing tendencies that it offered for global banks and finance, for global media, for global businesses of other kinds, is the main reason why we're in so much trouble now. Because back in the 60s and 70s, people were very clear about wanting to go back to the land, wanting to have more community. There was already a sense that this push into the cities, using fossil fuels for large-scale, toxic, unproductive agriculture. The big monocultures are much less productive than small diversified farms. But anyway, this push was, was beginning to be rejected and then the internet was sold as a way to allow people to live in a smaller village or town. It was sold as a tool of decentralization. But I think we're beginning to wake up to the fact that it's actually vastly, vastly more centralizing than decentralizing. And it's helped you know, the few to get richer and richer and richer and the majority to get and And by the way, it's important that we stress that the average middle-class person, even upper-middle-class person, even the CEOs of the giant corporations, everybody is being pushed to run faster and faster, compete harder and harder, and there are these mergers, and when whether two councils merge or two hospitals merge or two corporations merge, there's one CEO instead of two. So it's a rat race where everybody is afraid of losing their job. And it's crazy. It's just absolutely mad. But very few people are stepping back and looking at that system holistically. Um, at the grassroots, people have generally been more focused on defending and protecting maybe their particular shop or a park or you know whatever it might be the trees the dolphins but they haven't been stepping back to look at that global system and the people who are studying the global system are doing it essentially for profit motives and they're doing it from the point of view of very 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 powerful well-funded corporations and most of them are not evil people they're just there making sure that they're going to stay on top and that they're not going to lose their job. And they're pushing in a, in a very dangerous direction. And, and how, do we, how do we turn it around? Because, like, you know, I know the answer is local economies and local systems and local food. And, like, that all sounds like the answer. But when I'm sitting here now and I've got a phone in front of me with social media and I can and, I, and I'm kind of going, how do we how do we turn like, you know, we've all watched so many movies where it's kind of, you know, it reaches a crescendo and then the heroes solve it all. And I'm kind of going, how the heck are we going to turn this one around? You know, in, in this movie that we're all living in called life. They need to focus on an economic shift. 
but that hasn't quite happened yet on a large enough scale. But for instance, Naomi Klein, who is one of the leading climate activists, has recently come around to this. Absolutely clear now, we have to shift the economy. And we can't ignore the fact that when people are really squeezed economically, when they're struggling to pay their mortgage, they are very vulnerable to leaders who stand up and say, we're gonna grow the economy for you, we're gonna make your country great, we're gonna grow it, forget about all these ridiculous ideas like the Amazon is important or climate is important. So once we have a more connected view, so once we have at that level of these hundreds of millions of people, hundreds of millions, who are either trying to protect life in one form or trying to regain a better balance with life, we're trying to regain a better balance between rich and poor and the powerful and the less powerful. Once they see that there's this connected picture and they come together to share that, to build up a movement that will be bigger than any movement has ever been, because we have never had movements built around an issue that threatens everybody's health, everybody's rights. So there is the potential for this movement that will be bigger than, than anything we've ever seen. But what's required for it is the big picture. So the big picture, which looks at the big global system, and I say economic system, but it's, it's an economic system that has come to shape our science and technology, our education, our media, our government. So it's a really monstrous system. You know, it's a sort of, it's a giant interlinked corporate and banking system where even inside those banks, people are not really looking at the big picture. I've spoken to them. I've spoken to CEOs. I've spoken to Nobel Prize winning economists and in the World Bank and at the IMF and recently at the Brussels Economic Forum. And honestly to God, they are not being forced to look at this big system honestly and holistically and to see how damaging it is and how it is the reason why in every single country the gap between rich and poor is growing in such an obscene way and why we have this tragic extinction of species, increase in CO2 emissions. When actually, so anyway, I can go on and on, but I just want to say that I really think when the movements as they're beginning to do, start linking into new economy movements. And when they recognize that right under our noses are the smaller scale localized ways of doing things that have been there before and are still exist in many places and are being rebuilt, especially in the industrialized world. Right there is the evidence, the facts, and a movement that's growing. So it's not just theory that we work better when we human beings reduce our economic scale to fit inside our cultural, democratic, social, and ecological realities. So this is where the decentralization becomes so important. And so what we need is people learn from these small scale things that are happening and they demand policy change to support that. Now, what that would mean is that we no longer would allow our governments to subsidize global trade and global corporations, 
synthetic food instead of real food. We would make it very clear that they need to shift subsidies immediately with the goal of shortening the distance between farmers and consumers, with the goal of encouraging diversified production for local and national needs instead of monocultures for export. Just that alone, if that happened around the world, almost everything else would change. So there are certain key levers that with shift in policy could like, in a very, very short period, demonstrate the multiple benefits. And of course, it would take a while to get, you know, everything into place, but it's in the evidence and the benefits would be seen very rapidly. So Lena focuses a lot on the macro of everything that is going wrong in today's culture of globalized societies and how localization and communities is the answer. We believe the exact same too. Her description of pre-globalized Ladakh sounds nearly like a utopia. This made us think that we need more examples on, our, on other communities untouched by globalization. Another example other than Ladakh. So we turned to explore indigenous rights advocate, author, former Royal Marines officer, but he is possibly most well known for the three BBC documentary series Tribe, Amazon and Arctic, documenting his exploration of extreme environments, living with remote indigenous people and highlighting many of the important issues being faced on the environmental front line. Bruce Parry. Bruce is one of the few people on this planet who's come close to understanding what human communities would have been like years before, before the internet, industrial revelization in the age of exploration. He's an amazing man. He genuinely is. He's lived with, I, I can't tell you the amount of different indigenous tribes and the amount of learnings and wisdom he has in this. So it's an absolute treat. He immerses himself in these communities and here is the wonderful Bruce Parry. Yeah, I'm a bit of a princess in the pea, you know. It's like I, I like a comfy bed, and like when you you just it's rock hard and you, and it's cold or it's wet. I found that tough. And then the food is just monotonous food all day, every day, the same thing, day in day out. And sometimes really, I mean, sometimes it was amazing, but also sometimes it was really difficult. And what uh, type of food, like so, say. I mean, like, everywhere is different. Everywhere. Yeah. So, like, the, you know, so like, let's say I'm in New Guinea, um, and they just eat sago, which is the sort of inner pith of a palm tree, and they'll chop that down, and then they mash it up, and they wash it, and it basically ends up being like a like a ball of chalk, and then they'll just have, <laughs> a bit of chalk, and they'll soften that by the fire, and you're basically eating that, and it's like pure starch. It's like 100% starch, but no flavoring, and it's like eating chalk, and like. And so someone offers you a little bug or a grub and you're like, oh, my God, yes, please. You know, <laughs> and that's generally what it was. I remember a couple of occasions like so normally I'd always do it very strictly the first week fully with fully with the with the family. Um, and then after that, I would occasionally come back and visit the crew um, and the crew also outside of the village. Um, you know, with their tables and chairs and someone cooking for them and, uh, you know, a stag bowl and a bottle of wine and that sort of stuff on occasion. So so I try not to visit there too often because it's very tempting. But I remember once or twice, if I did go in, because we had to have a crew meeting, and if I did join them for a meal, then I really, and then something like a bug was offered me the next day, I really didn't want it, you know. And it really was, it really was as simple as that. It's like, you know, when you're, when you're, 
when you're not getting the proteins or when you're not getting these things, actually they taste all right. You know, like a locust is like a shrimp. I mean, it's very, very similar. Um, but when you've just had spag bol, you don't fancy it. But when you haven't, yes, please, that's amazing. Yeah, we certainly find this super interesting that how our taste buds change. And I guess it's the same way, like we see it. So many of us nowadays are addicted to processed foods. Like it's so common and so prevalent that, you know, according to statistics, 55 to 60% of the calories which we eat in Ireland, the UK, US are ultra processed foods. So like highly processed foods. And it's very difficult when you're used to eating this as the core of your diet. When you eat like whole foods, as in tasty, farm fresh vegetables and fruits and beans, they probably don't taste nice because your brain is used to fattier foods and more refined foods. So it's funny how our, our bodies, like they call it the pleasure trap that we're used to, we're addicted to processed foods. And when we taste whole plant foods, we don't get released enough dopamine. So it's almost like a trap. Our body's saying, oh, I want the other stuff. But for our short, medium and long-term health, really the whole foods are the better choice. One thing which was super interesting was Bruce speaks to us about his findings from a very relatable level. His learnings from these communities are fascinating. They genuinely are. And I guess he's got so much experience and so much years of it. And this is the distillation of what he found, really. I had to go through massive internal shifts to understand, you know, because you can just carry on looking at the world through your own sort of scientific material prism. But when you start taking on board that actually these people have got something else going on and maybe it's worth listening to because they're not the ones messing the planet up, you know, and then, then you, and rather than, you know, I started out by kind of thinking that I knew it all and then I ended up realizing I didn't know anything. Um, and that's a humbling journey. Wow. Yeah, so you kind of almost went in kind of with the idea that these people, like they don't shop in supermarkets, they don't buy online, they don't have phones, they're living very basic lives. Oh, let's see what they're doing. And then through the process, it almost like you realize that their connection to nature and their way of being and their way of living w- seem to be bringing a lot more peace and, you know, love and joy in their lives than possibly how we're living in the West and in the first world. I mean, it's complex. And of course, each group is different. And some groups are, are struggling, you know, and some groups also have really difficult stuff going on. And, and some groups aren't in any way exemplary, you know, they're, they're misogynistic and, and violent and, and belligerent, you know, so there's, I'm not trying to put all indigenous peoples on a pedestal, but there are certain things that I learned along the way, backed up with then vigorous research when I got home, that have changed my perspective on so many aspects of life. And so things like mental health, you know, I never saw examples of addiction. I never saw examples of, uh, of like uh, some of the things that we have in our society that are really prevalent, you know, you, they're just not there in the same way. And, you know, some you know, people can sit and watch the river flow by all day long and just be calm. And, and I'm like, I used to start out thinking, like, I don't want to be like that. I like my sort of, mad sort of jumping around life and and as i've grown older and i don't think it's just because i've grown older but as i've grown older i've I, and, and you know and investigated things like meditation and, and 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 other spiritual practices i've come to realize that actually what i originally was like which was this sort of like kind of crazy in the mind and crazy in the body was was something that i'm much better off without and that they don't even have it in the first place. And the way that they bring up their kids and the way that they have connection in community and the way that they are connected also to 
place and they have a sense of belonging and all of these things actually do something to us in our bodies and in our minds and our spirits that allow for a sense of calm that we just don't seem to have. And I think that, and I could wax lyrical about all sorts of things in that realm that I think that I learned. And, and like I said, it doesn't mean that they're perfect. Of course not. And they still have ups and downs, but, but a lot of the problems that we have that, that um, they don't have in the same way. And that allows us to reflect on our lives in, in a really beautiful way, I think. His most interesting findings seem to be from the Panam tribe out in Borneo, where he was really blown away. And this was the last tribe which he went to stay with. So yeah, listen to this. This is super important. But then I met the Panan and I realized I didn't know anything at all. It's like this group was completely different to any other group that I'd been with. And, and completely different to any other group, including any other civilization or any other people or anything. So it's almost like everyone else that I've met in my life, you could put in one camp and then the Panan felt like they were working the same, same computer, different operating system, like completely different right down to the core. Um, and it took me a long time to figure out what that was. And I think that if I, if, and if did I, you notice that immediately or was that something that was just instantly. subtle? Wow. No, in, instantly I knew, but, um, but it didn't, I didn't know what it was because it was invisible to me. It was like, there's something completely different about this group, but what, what, I don't know what it is. Cause I can't, cause like from the face of it, they look like everyone else. It's like they're smoking, they're wearing t-shirts. They're like, it's not like, you know, going to visit the, the groups I visited in, in New Guinea who were naked and still using stone tools and so I mean, like, they, you would think that they were older in a sense in that, they're, in that they haven't even had metals arrived yet. But the Panan had something else going on. It wasn't about the, their material possessions or their trading. It was about the way they were. And you know, to cut a long story short, what I have since realized um, is that they offered me an insight into the time before the agricultural revolution or the Neolithic revolution as it's called and how we used to organize societies. And, and so even though I'd visited all these other groups, even some of them were hunter gatherers and some of them you know, were, were um, nomadic and there's a whole spectrum of other groups. But when I reflected on it, in actual fact, each one of those other groups, even though they looked, some of them looked ancient in their own right, were actually quite modern in that they've all taken on this new aspect, which has come about in the last 10,000 years called hierarchy. And so they all had chiefs, they all had shaman, they all had stra stratification within society and all the problems that come with that. And when I met with the Panan, I mean, I'd read about this thing called egalitarian, but I hadn't, it didn't strike me until I met them how that's a complete sea change from anything else that I'd seen. Like they were almost existing without competition in their hearts. It's like, and it doesn't mean to say that they don't have competition. They've just found tools and methodologies for, um, for, letting, for, for dealing with that so that it doesn't appear. And so they have like no shaman, no leaders. They're all sovereign individuals, but, they've all, but they're also a very, very strong collective. And, um, and, and that journey of, of, of meeting them and then meeting certain anthropologists who, who sort of told me what it was that I had come across. 
because I just thought this was like an anomaly in the middle of nowhere. And then I suddenly realized that, no, every group in Africa and Southeast Asia, basically in the tropics that we first left Africa and went out to Southeast Asia, any group that's still existing there that hasn't been affected by the Neolithic Revolution all have these similar traits. There's no ownership, no competition, no hierarchy. And, and, there's, and there's a strong growing belief now amongst anthropologists that this is basically how we all were for 95% of our time on the planet. I mean, that's, that's quite a big deal. That's like how we were. And it's only in the last 10,000 years we've got back into this game of aggression and hierarchy and, and competition and all the rest of it. And is it almost rooted, like, because you know the way, like I've heard you talk before where you said like back in the previous, like 95% of humans existence, there was no agriculture. So people were, you know, you, you, we were hunter-gatherers, we were nomads, and we had to carry what we had on our backs. So sharing was natural, and hierarchy didn't really exist. Whereas kind of now it seems like that the ego, are, you know, once we moved away from this, it's really exalted the human ego to some degree. And was that kind of part of the route which you discovered with the Panan, there was less ego and more harmony and more we versus I? Yeah, thank you. It's a really good point. I mean, I think there's a whole bunch of, of stuff that comes together for explaining why it is that they are like that. Uh, and, um, and, and, you know, and some of it is because that's probably how we evolved when we first became, when we first stood upright and then the women kicked out the alpha male and invited the other men to come and live with them. This is a, another story we can go into in a minute that I discovered. So I think that we, we evolved to become um, egalitarian uh, as, as sort of early days of, of being homo sapiens and then that lasted through so that obviously enabled it to be a continuance with the narratives that they kept going but I also think that um, that they that the way that they are and the way that they're um, seeing the world and perceiving the world and being in the world also helps and, and I'll explain that for a second, because uh, it, it's a little bit like what, what my film To Why goes on about. It's, um, it's like when you're hunting and gathering on a daily basis, that's like a meditative practice. You know, you have to be in your body, in your senses to be able to catch the monkey. If you're not, then it will get away, you know, so you've got to be very present. Likewise, when you're foraging, you've got to be incredibly present to what is around you. You can't just be, you know, off strolling strolling through the forest, you've got to be, where are the things? They're not necessarily visible instantly. So you've got to be looking and, and it's a different type of awareness. And, and anyone who's done a, like a 10 day silent meditation retreat or anything like that, you know, they'll always say that one of the things that, that the experience at the end of that period is through that journey of, of learning how to be present and uh, in the here and now. You, you gain this sort of expansion of consciousness and this sense of empathy and feeling part of something bigger than you. You know, you get this um, feeling of connection, basically. And I think that, 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 that these people quite possibly had that much more. And that's an invisible, you know, how do you prove that? You, you know, it's very, very hard to, for me to say that, absolutely. But it's a sense that I get is that they're feeling more empathically connected to each other in the forest, and when you have a sense of empathy, as you know, as you as as we all know, that shifts also your behaviour. Because if my feelings are directly related to your feelings or the forest feelings, then then it's in my interest that you're doing all right. 
you know, your pain's my pain, your pleasure's my pleasure. Let's let you know. I'm I'm more inclined to be acting positively in that space if I have a deep sense of empathy with everything. Bruce continues by touching on the empathetic nature of the Pirai tribe high in the Amazon. These are amazing. What we what we what we discover, which is the main reason I went, is that they have a running dialogue with something that is out there talking to them. Um, and you know, so as you say, spirituality, it's like, you know, many of us would imagine that 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 um we we hear about indigenous peoples who have connections to um you know deities or the spirit realm or whatever um and i've i've come across that in many places with you know shamans doing drumming or or you know plant medicines or what have you um but uh but i'd never come across group people who have it innately without any need for any type of activity that takes them into that realm these people just seem to have it and this running dialogue with a spirit entity that um, that's just there. And so my sort of, it fitted in with the th theorem that I was creating in the film was like, this is all about them being incredibly present. Um, and when you meet them, they are, they're just super here, solid here and now. And so I wanted to ask them, you know, where, where does this voice come from? What, what's it telling you? What, what, what are the guidances that you're receiving? And, um, and it turns out that there's lots of different voices and there's lots of different things going on. Um, but what, what was really nice is that the, the, and whether it's an intuition or whether it is a spirit, it, it's not for me to say, you know, all I know is that, that they have a voice, which isn't, doesn't seem to be just what they would think of as their own voice. It's another voice. Um, and what, what I really loved, and maybe for me the most powerful moment in the film is when I asked this guy Tuabachi, I was like, where, where, where does this voice come from? And he says, I receive it in my heart. And then it becomes words in my head. And, uh, and this fitted so beautifully with the work of Ian McGilchrist, who talks about the left and the right hemisphere, because the right hemisphere is the one that's more connected to the body and the heart. And this is the one that has the more... Um, the, the, the wider view that sort of takes things in in a much wider context and puts everything in context. So that really fitted in with the sort of theory that we were building in the film. Um, and yeah, it is a, a, an intuition. It is, a, it, is, um, so it, it is something. But the other really beautiful thing about the, the, this voice was that when it was guiding them, it always seemed to be guiding them in a way that was pro-nature, that was pro-biodiversity. It was like, don't take too much, you know, don't, I'm telling you, don't take the, the whole trees down. Don't, um, don't um, only take what you need. And so that was really, that was really um, beautiful, I thought. Uh, and as you know, just to finish off, and, and tragically, just to finish off, you'll also notice in the film that the last little bit we do with them is that they have now started to farm, to garden, and they're the 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 they're telling me um, that the they're now not listening to this voice anymore, and this voice, this voice is saying to them, this voice is saying to them. Um, please don't chop chop us down. The trees are saying, "Don't we're, we're like you? We're human too. We're, it hurts. Please don't burn us." And they're still fucking doing it. So hearing how the Pirai have changed feels 
it really does feel devastating. Like it actually feels painful. I feel pain when I hear about it. Like it really, really reminds me of the classic movie Avatar, um, which is absolutely one of my favorites. It genuinely is. Where really, you know, the, the, you've got the, what are they called? The Navi, Navi people, and they are so connected to the land um, with their Omatakaya and their, um, the tree of souls and all the various aspects of it. And they're so connected to nature and along come the, the humans, which are trying to steal these magical rocks that have loads of power and are worth loads of, they have so much embodied energy in it. And it just reminds me of these basic struggles where, you know, here's a peaceful community that lives in harmony and along comes... Um, Others with greed and whatnot, and at the expense, these beautiful communities are destroyed. So Bruce, Bruce continues to talk about egalitarianism and how people respond to him when he describes the Panam and benefits it showed in their culture. No chiefs, no ownership, no ego. I know the reason I'm so driven is because I've met people who are existing like that. And, and I, 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 I've given talks about this before, and I know that it just goes over people's heads a lot of the time. And I'm like, this is so far away from anyone's consciousness is true. The true understanding of this egalitarian way is so far away that I just sound either naive or, 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 or just foolish really. Cause it's just, it, 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 it's hard to get. And that's where I got to It's like, okay, for the only way this is actually going to land for others if is if they can also experience it like I experienced it. And the only way they're going to do that, cause not everyone's going to fly out to Borneo or to the Congo is that I okay I've just got to try it you know so that's the journey I'm on and um and it's not uh it's a long way from, it's a long way from you know I'm still in the very 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 embryonic stage of um building something and uh and it's so it, it, I'm sort of reluctant to I'm not reluctant but I, I'm I'm fearful of saying too much in case it doesn't happen or come across but like that's the, that was the that's the dream is to create something that can in some small way replicate what i felt and learned so that that can be felt and learned by others and, and you know and grow because i genuinely feel that it's it's a that we'll be happier you know you're the happy pair i think we we will will be happy. I think that we will find a deep contentment. I think that so many of the problems of our time dissipate. You know, we don't need all this stuff to make us happy. It's like, it's the simple things that actually do it. And, and, and we forget that, you know, you just have to read anyone who's done all the PhDs of asking people what they regretted on their deathbeds and all the, you know, all this stuff. It's like, we know what makes us happy, really. It's not buying the big house and the big car. It's like, it's time with our friends and it's nature and it's, and it's like, and it's the simple stuff. And like those people have that in abundance and it's knowing who you are and being connected. You know, it's like there's so many studies about how addiction is related to connection and all of this stuff. And, 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 and it's true. I notice it in myself, you know, when I'm, when I'm fully nourished on the deepest level with, with friends and family and, and space and, and less stress, especially stress from like social stress, um, which again, you don't have if everyone's equal, um, then, you know, I'm not, I'm not scrolling through Instagram all day. You know, it's like, I, I have other shit to get on with. And, and, and yet we, we are, you know, so it's, we are a long way away from that and it is going to be hard to turn the corner. And obviously the biggest thing, the first thing is we, well, 
the the journey to get there is, is, is has a number of steps but like the first one is believing it's possible and and therefore wanting to go on that journey and the second one is like then going through the journey of healing because it's like because one one thing we've done very well is we've created the life that we wanted and only just waking up to the fact that the life we wanted isn't actually very good for us at all. You know, we've like broken into the Swedish shop and we're all fucking dying from <laughs> really bad diseases. And like, and like, it's not good for us. And actually, but it's, but it's very tempting to be gorging yourself in this beautiful sweet shop but like we know that exercise is good for us but we're not very good at doing it you know all these sorts of things and so to make that shift we have to like genuinely believe that it's worthwhile and 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 especially as going on the journey of kind of, sort of stepping out of the sweet shop and getting over our addictions to all that and going into something that we know is more wholesome but it's like it feels difficult at first and and that is going to be the same for a lot of us going through the journey of coming back together you know we we're, we're very good at being on our own because we don't have to deal with our stuff you know and then you come back into it's hard enough being in relationship with one person let alone a community of people let alone being like really aware of what we're doing to the rest of the world and the rest of the planet you know those taking on board those things is is going to be difficult and it will mean letting go of some stuff and it will also mean some deep self-reflection and probably uh, some trauma therapy along the way, which we all need. And so it's, you know, it's, it's not cut and dry that it's going to be possible, but if we can genuinely believe that, that, that what we'll find on the other side is going to be glorious beyond all imaginings, which I think it could be, then, then it's worth trying, you know, but it's hard to do it on your own. And so, you know, the more that understand this and the more they get on board with this, then, then, then obviously then it's uh, it's an easier journey when you're doing it in unison. And that, that's kind of, that's the dream. And um, so it's like, it's slow starting, but that's, that's where I'm heading. I love Bruce's description of we've broken into the sweet shop and we're all dying from it. And I really think there is so much truth from it because modern society, it's, it's so wealthy and so pleasure focused, but really it's certainly not fulfilling many of our kind of deeper spiritual needs and human needs and the same at the planet's expense. So I really think it's such a beautiful expression. We've broken into the sweet shop and we're eating too many sweets really and it's time to get out of the sweet shop. The metaphorical, of course. Um, yeah, I think it'll be super amazing to see how Bruce gets on with his own egalitarian community, his social experiment, really, which he's doing in Wales. I look forward to visiting him someday. And I really think there's so much truth in what he's doing and what he's exploring and trying to understand, because I really think we need these trails, trailblazers to lead the way. And there's going to be fragments of truth which we can apply at a greater societal level. Okay, so moving briefly along, there's many others who've built self-serving localized communities, which leads us to a wonderful man by the name of Rob Hopkins. He's the co-founder of the Transition Network and Transition Towns Totnes. He and a few others started their own independent community in Totnes. They've used their imaginations, creativity, intelligence to think around the systems and make their lives far more, more sustainable. He really is about rethinking things. He's about, there's, we have the capacity to rethink how we live and how we set up our communities. And he is putting into practice. He is such a trailblazer. He's amazing and really, really inspiring. And when you hear what he has done, it's really, you know, to get you started, according to Rob, you need an imagination. And we also need to surround ourselves with 
stories of change, of good change. The world's full of them. You never read them in the newspaper and you rarely see them on the telly, but the world is full of them. And when you're being imaginative, basically what you're doing, the part of your brain where your imagination fires from, called the hippocampus, is also where your memory is. So you have this part of your brain, which is your imagination and your memory. Because when you're being imaginative, you're basically going to the kind of memory cupboards in your imagine in in your in your brain and looking through them and going oh yeah cool there's this bit and there's this bit and then when you put them together and make something new that's the imagination piece so we can when we're trying to dream a different future we can only be as imaginative as we have inspiring stuff in our cupboards if you go to the cupboards and it's just full of articles out of the daily mail or something because that's all we ever looked at it's really hard to imagine a low carbon future but the world is full of towns reimagining their food system their energy system their transport system and we need those stories as well and the last thing i would just say is as you said it's about space we have to create some space in our lives because at the moment we work harder, we spend longer working, we have a work culture that follows us home, that expects us to be responding to emails at two o'clock in the morning, that just sort of invades. You know, I was saying, you know, 30 years ago, if you were if you went to the loo and the postman just barged his way in through loads of letters at you, you'd tell him to clear off. And but actually now that just that work culture just follows us everywhere. So we need to make space for for just sitting, for walking, for being outdoors, for ourselves, for our mental capacity, meditation, yoga, drawing, writing, all of that stuff is really important for the imagination. And you need the willingness to fail. We need to be willing to take risks and we need to celebrate failure. That if you try something and it doesn't work, great. What did you learn? What can we learn from that? You know, that that it's in, in the transition movement, we really try and encourage this thing of just try things, you know, just have a go. What have we got to lose? It's like, because where else can you do that? If you're working for the council and you try something, it doesn't work, they'll probably fire you. You know, if you follow the football, you know, if you, if you haven't won, if you lose three games in a row, everyone wants to kick you out, you know, and actually, so where do we have a culture where you can try and you can experiment and, and think some things don't work and some things do work and that's fine. And, uh, there's a lovely story about Edison when he invented the light bulb, where he it took some like 10,000 different models uh, before he came up with a commercially viable light bulb. And when he'd made like nine and a half thousand light bulbs and none of them had worked, someone said, uh, this is, a, you're not doing very well here, mate. And uh, I think you might be, a, this might be a bit of a fail. And he said, no, 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 no. What I have discovered is the nine and a half thousand ways to not make a light bulb. You know, that's really, that's, that's a really particular kind of success too. You know, so it's, it's only really the beautiful thing for me about the transition movement is that, is that it's just people all over the world just trying stuff out and sharing their learnings. And that's how we learn. Sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. And here in Totnes, there have been quite a few projects that we've started in transition. They haven't worked, but We've tried them out and share the learnings and, and that's how we might figure all of this out, I think. An example of one of the projects by Totnes to get around the cost of building, buying, owning a house is? Well, there are things to mention from Totnes. So one of them is a project called Transition Homes, which is now just started building 39 homes uh, using a lot of local materials uh, as something which is designed to, which will be in community ownership and is about meeting housing need because there's a huge problem around here of people not being able to afford to live here. The average house price, the average salary in Totnes is about £25,000 a year and the average house price is about £350,000 a year. So there's a huge gap of people who live here but can't afford to, who work here but can't afford to live here. 
So, so that's building homes, and then that's also what the Atmos project I mentioned at the beginning is doing. And and how does that how does that housing one work again? Like, so say the community come together, they raise money, everyone chips in a tenner, for example. You raise a million euro or a million pounds, you buy a field, you get architects to do up designs, you design thirty nine houses that are using local materials or whatever. And then you sell them at affordable prices. Is that well, yeah, that's, that's your choice. You you can either sell them at affordable prices or what we're planning to do with the Atmos project is that you fund them by borrowing money over 25, 30 years. And then the rent from, from those houses then pays that money off over that time. So so the, the beauty of that is that a project like the Atmos project, which is going to be 62 homes built on this old industrial site, and as well as a hotel and the music, all the other stuff I mentioned before, that once that's built, it'll be generating two, three million pounds every year for the community to then do with as it, as it decides to do once the loans are paid off. You know, so there are economic models where we, we just get so used to thinking you get a piece of land, you build the houses, you flog them for as much as you can get, and then you make some money. Actually, you can tweak that model a lot. You can say, actually, we're going to uh, see if maybe the, the council has some land that they could give us. Then you knock off the, the, the cost of buying the land because it's a social, you're doing something with a social purpose. Then you say, actually, we're going to borrow the money over 30 years rather than 20 years. So that means it's, it's cheaper. We're going to build them in a particular way that's a kind of low-cost way, maybe that people can get involved with themselves and learn skills and build their own homes, and then they pay less rent. Again, then you bring that down again. So, so that model can be tweaked and changed so that you can create a model that serves the community rather than the profit for private developers. You know, there's two very different models here. And just because we're used to one doesn't mean that the other one is, wouldn't actually be better. They also started their own brewery, becoming UK's first community-owned brewery and echoing Helena. Rob continues with the benefits and beauty of localization and diversity. And we actually passed by this brewery a couple of weeks ago when we were actually visiting Tottenham. We were literally passing through it. We'd half an hour and we passed by the door of the brewery, but it wasn't open because it was uh, eight in the morning. But it was nice to see it anyway. Well, I went to this bar in Boston and they had 80 different beers on from breweries within the Boston region. I was like, fuck, this is awesome. Really? What's going on here? And I'd never tasted beer like this, but those are kind of really hoppy, crafty kind of IPA beers. I was like, oh my God, why don't we have a brewery in Totnes? And then we dug around and we found that historically there had been a brewery in Totnes up until 1921 that was called the Lion Brewery. So the whole conversation was, how do we bring the lion back? So the brewery is called the New Lion Brewery. And uh, last year we became the UK's first 100% community-owned brewery where we raised £180,000 from 270 investors. Uh, and we're the, one of the very first 100% community-owned breweries in the country. But the thing that, that I love about that is it should be that I could go to Sheffield, say, and, and, and it always used to be the case, you could go to Sheffield or wherever, and there would be things that you would be able to have in Sheffield that you couldn't have anywhere else. You know, they were kind of cakes and kind of breads and particular kind of beer and particular dishes that were that were sort of indigenous to that place and that you would have to travel to Sheffield to have this beer because you couldn't get it anywhere else. And uh, and I love that kind of really bringing that diversity into our food culture. There's a brewery in Santa Rosa in California called uh, Russian River Brewing Company. And one of the things they do every year that they do a beer called um, Pliny the Elder. And every year, just for two weeks, they brew a beer called Pliny the Younger, which is only available from the brewery 
over those two weeks. In that time, so many people come to visit it that it's worth something like $6 million to the economy of this place. People filling out hostels and hotels and, and stuff to come and stay there, you know, and, and I love this idea that 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 every bit of that diversity that we put back it's like when you go to italy you know and you go to a visit or you go to a village and they say like ah you must try our olive oil it's the best olive oil in all of italy but the the, the next town down the road you don't want to touch their olive oil it's disgusting you wouldn't wash your car with it and then you go to that village and they're like ah our olive oil is the best in the whole country <laughs> but where is that that kind of embrace of diversity of tastes and flavors and that used to be, you know, you travel around Europe on the train and everywhere you went, there was like kinds of pasta and cheese. And, and actually now you just arrive there and there's just supermarkets. You know, we lose so much. You know, that, that diversity is so, so precious, I think, to our experience as human beings. Rob and the transition movement are looking at the world differently. They genuinely are. They've opened their minds, their imagination, and they're looking for a better future. In so many ways, what we are doing can be summarized by this next bit from Rob. What would you reimagine? How would you reimagine an economy? You would reimagine an economy where 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 you would start by what you by how you measure how successful it is. That at the moment we just measure as success of an economy by how much bigger than last year. I mean, imagine you know with your kids, right? If if you know if there is a there is a while in the evolution of of your children where. The fact that they're bigger than they were last year is considered part of this is a good, this is they're growing in the right direction. They're bigger than they were before. If that was the only measure and they just kept on growing and growing and growing till they're about 50 meters tall, after a little while, you'd think something's going really, really wrong here. You know, actually what you want your kids to do is to grow ideally to just be slightly shorter than you are and then to start growing in different ways to become kinder and wiser and more skilled and more connected and more resourceful. Actually, we don't, and we don't have that assumption for our economy. We just say, is it bigger than last year? Grand. Okay, that's good then. You know, the fact that with the fact that cancer rates are rising and anxiety is rising and uh, people are less and less able to walk home on their own after dark and there's more, you know, all, all the things that we don't want to happen in a society, we don't measure, we don't factor those in. So we'd start by saying, is this, is this economy uh, building well-being every year? Are people happier than they were last year? Do, do people feel more uh, agency over their future than they did last year? Do people feel uh, more part of a society than they did before? I, I did an interview as part of the podcast with some people from an organization uh, in Canada who work on this idea of well-being economics. And I said to them, how would you measure this? How would you know? What, what things would you measure? And, and, and it, I was really touched. One of the guys said, well, maybe one of the things you would measure is the number of girls able to cycle home on their own after dark. So Rob truly is amazing. He inspired us back 10 years ago to start our own transition town, Greystones, which this was before I had kids and there was probably 20 of us that were involved. We had all sorts of different projects which we were doing. I was in charge of the transportation one where we had... You know, we we got loads of people to donate all the old bikes, which they didn't use. We were going to get the kids from the local school to help kind of fix them up along with the pensioners, the kind of older pension group. And we had this kind of whole project. I'd about, I collected about 100 or 200 bikes. And then I think I ran out of steam. There was, um, I think I might have had my first daughter then. So it wasn't a top priority. But the work that Rob is doing is really so inspiring with the Transition Towns movement and really leading the charge himself by examples. They had their own, you know, local currency for 17 years. I think it was the Totnes Pound. 
And they've got so many different projects in terms of local energy projects and social projects. And really, it's like we went to Totnes, as I said, uh, a number of weeks ago. And literally, we're only passing through for an hour. But you can really see that there is the undercurrent of community and doing things differently. And it's a very progressive town. Um, so I think Stephen described it as it was one of the few places that I've been to that I go, oh, I could live here. Yeah, it's pretty cool. This is just full of really nice people here. So, um, yeah, Rob's a legend. Check him out. Just before we wrap up, I just wanted to talk briefly about, you know, obviously the Blue Zones has been something me and Stephen have been curious about for the last decade, really, and have been very, it's been part of our life, really. We've implemented quite a bit of it in terms of movement, in terms of, you know, eating plant-based and focusing on community and managing to be able to shift our way through the gears in terms of being able to down de-stress and whatnot. So Blue Zones, wonderful, fascinating. I think the egalitarianism, the idea that Bruce Parry's sharing where we're kind of, you know, there really is less ego. Ultimately, it's about diluting our own sense of self because the ego and the poor me can be quite strong in all of us. And I think his experiment with kind of egalitarianism and no possessions and you know, very harmonious. It's very idealistic. And I really think there's huge fragments fragments of truth which can be applicable to each one of our lives. Um, in terms of diversity, like we've been at this experiment with our local farm. We've got a four-acre four regenerative organic local farm. And I really see it ourselves in terms of as we start to heal the soil, the plants get better. As the plants get better, there's more bugs, there's more insects. As there's more insects and bugs, there's bigger animals and biodiversity starts to increase. And I guess we're at a stage now um, in the world, really, where there's so many different species dying every year, every day, species becoming extinct. And really, I think it's about us becoming local is so, so, so important. And I'm as big a hypocrite as as many people in terms of I like to travel, I get on planes, I do all that type of stuff. But I think as individuals, we can really take responsibility and we are all consumers. I don't know anyone uh, that really doesn't consume in terms of buying things or eating stuff. As humans to exist, we need to consume. So it's about really taking the power into ourselves and realizing that what we choose to you know, buy or purchase or eat has a huge impact on the planet and therefore biodiversity and every aspect of human life whatsoever. So really consumerism, you hold the power within your own hands to kind of influence the type of world that you want to live in. And by that, I'm really trying to steer you towards making more sustainable choices in terms of you know, food in terms of clothing, in terms of shelter. And to think about it, there is no perfect. There really is no perfect. So it's not about beating yourself up and finger pointing, but it's about being aware that we can make little steps collectively that will really have a massive effect at a globalization level. So, um, yeah, I really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you if you did get a lot out of it, check out those episodes, the full episodes. That was with Dan Butner, Bruce Parry, Helena Norberg-Hodge and with the wonderful Rob Hopkins. Also in the series, we talked to some really other amazing people. If you're interested in reimagining the schooling system, we had a wonderful episode with a, an incredible man, John Stewart. Yeah, really amazing. Uh, we talked with friend, learned about how to talk with strangers, particularly relevant for the loneliness epidemic, and how to cultivate community on the road with the wonderful Brian Adams. That is the Brian Adams summer of 69. Um, so yeah thanks Mel for your attention today really really appreciate it hope you got something from it this is really trying to give you the short letter and how you can actually apply it in terms of community the practical ap- application which we can do to try to make our lives that little bit better because if each of us can make our lives 2% 3% better by simple basic little habits well that's going to compound and influence all the other people within our lives and therefore maybe as a planetary level who knows but um, anyway 
Wishing you all the best. Hope you have a really kind, gentle, lovely day. Um, so without further ado, sending loads of love and thanks for your attention. And uh, yeah, if you want to share this, if you did enjoy this, if you want to share it in Instagram stories, we'll reshare it and get the message out there as well. Yeah, and if you want to give us feedback on our podcast, we'd love to hear from you. The email address is podcast at thehappypair.ie. And yeah, we genuinely love to hear your feedback on any upcoming guests you'd like, what episodes you'd like. Any kind of feedback would be great. It'd be lovely to get an email to that email account. So uh, yeah, thanks, Mel. See you later. Bye. Bye, 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 bye.